Hey, what's up? This is Kevin from Kevin's Barbecue Joints, and welcome to the Kevin's Barbecue Joints podcast. And welcome to episode four of Wine and Barbecue with Aaron Fijis. This one is awesome. Our guest is Jordan McKay, who's an author, a wine expert, an all-around incredible human. He's so enthusiastic. He's so engaged. He's so interested in learning and it's infectious and this is such a fantastic interview i'm not gonna go too long because the interview itself is long and then we talk a little bit Erin and i talk at the end about some things going on with fijas and a recent trip that she and patrick and a number of other pitmasters and barbecue owners from the united states went to so that's at the end of this but jordan is just it's wonderful if you're into barbecue and meat he's co-written two books that you know of he has franklin barbecue which is easily the most referenced book on this entire podcast and with almost everyone i know they have this book they've used it it's been a primer for a lot of people that have brand new barbecue joints or pop-ups he also has franklin steak which we get into in depth and a lot of people might not know as much about this book but after you hear what he has to say about it i know you're gonna want to purchase it i'll have links below to all of his books he has a fantastic knowledge about beef and cattle and this discussion during the interview is killer he also wrote the secrets of the sommelier with rajette parr rajette parr is like the aaron franklin of barbecue the two of them are at the top of their field and so he wrote that book with him and he also has the sommelier's atlas of taste which was recommended to me by aaron as i'm trying to gain more knowledge in the wine world so i'll cut this off right now aaron and i can't thank jordan enough for taking the time sharing the stories he goes way back in his life and his career and his path and it's just outstanding outstanding so make sure you do give him a follow too because he has an incredible journey ahead of him he also too i don't want to forget he talks about a new book that he and aaron are coming out with next year called franklin smoke which i had no idea about aaron had no idea about and you're going to learn about this exclusively on this show so sit back relax enjoy this with jordan and be sure to visit your local barbecue joint. It's just, it's great to uh, to meet people who are interested in barbecue and wine because for a long, long, long time, there really were not very many. When I, when I set out into barbecue, it was a little bit of a random turn in my career, which had been devoted purely to, uh, to wine and cocktails and spirits and things like that. I was a columnist in San Francisco where I was living at the time. And then the opportunity to work with Aaron Franklin came sort of out of the blue and in a way also saved me because I was getting a little bit, a little bit depressed, just feeling a little hemmed in by the, uh, by the beverage world. And I've always loved to cook and I grew up in Austin, you know, and uh, I'm from Texas, but barbecue was not as big when I was growing up in Texas as it became after I left. (laughs) So, um, you know, I saw that whole Thing change, but but anyway, it really kind of saved my saved my life in a way because I was I was literally like lying on the couch, you know, just wondering what I'm going to do. I wasn't feeling I wasn't feeling the whole social media explosion. I'm still not very good at that. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> and uh, and Absolutely. and yet I felt like all of a sudden all these people were sort of racing past me with the topic that I you know so. Um, so deeply and you know heartfeltedly covered for so long and i just and i didn't know how to keep up and then and then uh, you know aaron franklin came along and that that really changed things for me but i wasn't i wasn't a barbecue expert by any means when when that started and in fact you know my first few days to work on that first book with him franklin barbecue Oh, sorry. We have a loud cat. Um, <laughs> he's she's agreeing. She's agreeing. You know, I was, I really, really had very little knowledge and he sort of assumed, I think that I had more, I had 
I guess we'll, we'll just go into this if, if you were going to ask the background. So just before before Franklin and, and how I got a little bit on uh, on on his map and on the map of our uh, agent, David Hale Smith, who lives in Dallas, I actually started you know, you, you I probably, didn't know. Yes, I didn't realize the connection, but I know David. I found um, out last so night know. when I was reading an article. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay, there you go. I'm sure we know uh, many people in common, Aaron, because I know I know a bunch of people on the Houston wine scene as well, of course. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, I you know I, my early career, my start was at Texas Monthly, and uh, in fact, uh, I, I will just go back all the way since we're doing this. My first article about wine was about Texas wine for Texas Monthly. And, and that was in like 2000 or 2001. And I was just a young amateur wine enthusiast at the time and was sort of like tired of, you know, I'd go and I'd run into these Texas wine producers at, you know, pouring a little bit at Central Market or something like that. And I just thought the wine was terrible. And I was wondering why is Texas wine so bad? Where's the, where's the good wine or where's the potential or is it just a joke? And so I, Bernie? <laughs> Sorry, our cat's name is Fernet Branca. Let me close the door. <laughs> That's, <hilarious. laughs> That's so funny. Anyway. And our, our dog's name is Brisket. So, <laughs> <the theme. laughs> so anyway, uh, that got me started. And then after that piece ran, a couple of months later, I got a call from the wine editor at Food and Wine Magazine, who had improbably read my piece and liked it enough to ask me to write a couple of things for Food and Wine. Otherwise, I'd had no ambitions really of doing that, I was just a person who loved food and wine. So anyway, years later, I'd moved to San Francisco, lucked into a position writing wine columns for the Metro magazine and things like that. And I was also writing a bi-weekly column semi- every two weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's a good one too. <laughs> for the Austin American Statesman for a while. Anyway, and then, you know, I'd noticed this barbecue thing really happening in Texas. And when I would come home to visit my mom and my friends, you know, I would see it. And living in Austin, you're right near Lockhart and all that. And I wanted to understand barbecue, you know, and I wanted to experience it. So I I got a commission for this really awesome, very small boutique food quarterly called The Art of Eating, which is, is quite high end and it's, it's really neat subscription only. They commissioned me to write an article about Central Texas barbecue. Oh. And so I did. And I went out and visited all these places, Snows, you know, all the places in Lockhart, Louis Mueller's, all of that. And just, um, just for reference, sorry to interrupt, for reference, what, what year do you think that was? Because in barbecue, was probably that like 2000, 2014, maybe, you know, 13, 14, somewhere in there. And um, yeah, I've been doing wine stuff for a long time already. And anyway, this was just kind of a fun diversion for me. So, uh, so I published what I think was probably the longest article ever on maybe on barbecue and certainly on Texas barbecue, because it was like seven or 8,000 words. And, you know, somehow my agent saw it or an Aaron showed it to Aaron and they really liked the way I approached barbecue. And then this is the connection. I've talked about this before, but um, as, as you know, from both of you loving wine and studying it and visiting producers and things like that, to really get into wine, it's quite a technical, technical approach. You know, you have to understand viticulture, you have to understand uh, winemaking, you have to understand aging, um, all of these things. You have to remember grapes and soils. I mean, 
if you want to get super geeky about it, which, you know, I'm sure we are all prone to do, uh, <laughs> yes. which is what brings us together today. But, um, but anyway, so I realized later that that's how Aaron Franklin, you know, approaches barbecue. And I think that's why he was interested in my article because I approached barbecue like I approached wine and in a kind of scientific way, not just saying, oh, this is good, this is tender, you know, the, but why is it that way, you know? And then I think that was just kind of in a, in a group with a, a number of food writers were starting to approach food in general like that. So that's kind of, that's the, the long story about how I got into barbecue. And then it's just, you know, um, my relationship with Aaron has just been great. And, you know, he's become one of a dear, dear friend, he and Stacy, his wife. Um, so, so that just, that's continued to be a really great relationship in my life. You know? Did you, I'm sure you, maybe you did it at the time, but how did you realize how pivotal that book would be for people? No, no, no. I had no, I had no idea. I don't think anyone did. Our publisher didn't. Uh, we were all sort of shocked about that. And, you know, it, it, it's also it was it was heartening because when we started it, Aaron, you know, the trouble, the challenge of working with Aaron is he always has three, four, five things going on at one time. He's just like he's a very energetic person and he loves to do things. And anyway, in this case, that's been the case of all of our books that we've been working on. And it was a case in the first one. He was also shooting his PBS show at the same time. Uh, and it was a very nice feeling when the book came out and was so significant. And even though I wish the PBS show had sort of reached a wider audience or what, you know, it lives on on, P on YouTube perhaps, but- um, Yeah, it does. But, but I, was, uh, I was thrilled that the, you know, uh, a strike for books, you know. That, <laughs> but it's, but it, it, to me, it's funny because I've done 300 plus of these interviews, some people more than once, but a lot of new newcomers in the barbecue business and almost every single one says, that book is the book that put them on the road or, or at least gave yeah. them some sort of guidance. It's, it's, I don't want to like, I'm, this might be insulting to some religious people. It's considered the Bible. This is the Bible for mm -hmm. the barbecue industry. And to take it more into biblical references, people refer to the pre Aaron and the mm -hmm. post Aaron. I was going to say that too. <laughs> timeframes of barbecue. So when like, like when you were talking about your journey and, and your, your background and stuff, literally in my head, I was saying pre-Aaron, post-Aaron, because he changed the way people look at barbecue. We grew up in Texas, you, you in the Austin area, me in the Houston area, um, and barbecue was everywhere. But like, I never really thought of barbecue as part of my life. And I never really thought of barbecue as, as a, something that I could have a future in. Mm -hmm. And I think Aaron really changed that. And I think the book really made it so that people that were outside of his circle could access that. And he's so analytical. I mean, you just have a conversation with him. And once you get past like all the puns and, you know, bad jokes, it's just this really analytical guy who, if he wasn't in barbecue and doing something else, he would have that same approach to how he did that thing. Like he wants to understand the mechanics of it, the science. It's just, it's, it's, such a great base point, I think, for people um, that want to get into barbecue. And uh, people always ask us, like, hey, we have Aaron Franklin's book. What else should we get? And we're like, that's yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all you uh, need for yeah. Texas-style oh, really barbecue. Cool. Yeah. It, it's really cool. That you, and and I, I agree with you. And it's, 
it's really interesting because growing up in Texas too, yes, I we had barbecue places in Austin. You know, there weren't very many and they, they weren't that good. But barbecue was something that was really very average. And I mostly remember it, you know, being brought out in big, you know, uh, foil pans for like family reunions or soccer team parties, you know, and you would just have this sweet, you know, very cardboard like brisket. And, and even if you went out, you know, as we learned going out to Lockhart, those places are really cool, but they weren't, their, their style was not really that different than what you were getting, which was largely coming from ovens at the time, even in Austin. And, you know, I think, I think going back and looking at it, you know, Aaron really changed it. He wasn't, and it's amazing that the power of deliciousness and really, really well-cooked barbecue, that it, that, that alone can affect such change. You know, I think, I think Snows was out there um, doing it uh, even before Aaron, but out in Lexington, an hour in a very small town, only open one day a week, you know, is, uh, is sort of a, it's a different animal. But, but Texas Monthly ran that article, or, or it's a New Yorker, someone ran that article on Snows way back. Uh, and, yeah. and that was like the revelation. But, but then the fact that Aaron was figured it out for himself, I don't, I don't even know if he'd been to Snows, and was doing it in downtown Austin, you know, every single day. That's the thing is like, you know, to make really, really awesome barbecue one day a week is fantastic. And out but, of a trailer too. Yeah, but out of a trailer yeah. and then out of a restaurant largely by himself, the 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 maniacal attention <laughs> to detail and yes. energy and your work ethic to do that six days a week, you know, is astounding. But also yeah. when you mentioned flavor, flavor is the reason why you do what you do, right? And why you're so hyper-focused on wine and spirits mm -hmm. and food, right? Yeah. And that's exactly why you've, and that's why you've chosen this path, right? You would, you wouldn't be on this path if it wasn't because food was and 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 the spirits oh. and that was all introduced to you at a younger age. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I mean, and then just also even, even at a very young age, you know, I, I've, I've talked about before written about how, you know, how I got into interested in wine and drinks by reading James Bond books when I was 10 years old, you know, the, the old novels by Ian Fleming, oh, and yeah. dining, and then, and I loved dining scenes. I just always had a great, you know, I loved, I loved flavor, but also I loved, I'm a tourist. So I loved, you know, yeah. um, luxury Damn. and expansiveness, you know, and, <laughs> um, and, and all of that stuff. And the, the spirit of wine and of food, you know, it's, it's, so much more than deliciousness, it's connection, yeah. it's travel, it's exploration, it's nutrition, all of these things that I really think are interesting. And barbecue, you know, was also, it was a way for a lot of people to start to experience this amazing culture of Texas, yeah. you know? Do you remember the first glass of wine or the first vineyard or the first producer that you visited that you realized something was different? Because I, you talk about how with Aaron, that's when things kind of shifted for you. Like is, mm -hmm. do, can you remember that at all? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I do have a few like wine epiphanies, which I remember were my first taste. I mean, I'd been, I'm sure I'd tasted it. My parents were very nice when I was growing up. They let me drink, you know, they would put like, you know, one eighth coffee, seven eighths milk, 
you know, I got to taste their wine. I got, when they would sit down and have gin and tonics in the evenings, I would have like tonic with lime, you know, I, I'd always be <laughs> keeping up with them, you know, and um, very sophisticated. In I your love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I remember, and, and, you know, I remember also, uh, you know, checking out wine books from the, from the old English wine writer sections of my college library and things like that when I was in my twenties. But I don't think I'd had, I, I was interested in it almost more as a cultural artifact than as something really incredible because I'm not sure I tasted really incredible wine. So yeah, my first, my first wine experiences were sort of, my great ones were earlier in like my early twenties when I remember an amazing uh, Barolo from Bruno Jacosa that, you know, that we snuck into a movie theater and, and I was, I'm, I'm always very paranoid and overly, overly cowed by authority. But, uh, but so I was, I was really nervous that we were going to get spotted for sneaking in a, a wine bottle and a glass into a movie theater. And then we pulled off the cork. We'd uncorked it before, but put it back in. And it seemed like the whole movie theater just filled up with this incredible scent of strawberries and cherries and roses. And it was one of the most beautiful wines I'd ever had. So I'll never remember or never forget experiences like that, you know. Did you know that that was like, were you, so you already had an education in wine at that point? I'd been reading. I, I'm, I'm pretty much self-taught. I didn't, in Austin at the time, you know, and, and I, would, I would write this book on sommeliers, but in Austin at the time, I don't think there were any real sommeliers. Maybe there was a manager who bought wines and worked the floor occasionally, but, you know, there were only maybe two or three sommeliers in all of Texas. This is sort of in the mid nineties or people who would really call themselves that. So I, I ended up, you know, I just used whatever resources I could get, which were, you know, um, I was working in restaurants part-time while I was interning at Texas Monthly. So I, the wine tastings that they would do for, for staff, and I would go to friends, the restaurants where other friends worked and sit in on their wine tastings. And then I would hound local wine reps, the people with knowledge. Uh, there was, you know, and, and then I was reading books all the time and, the early, early days of, of the internet, you know, looking uh, at, you know, like old chat boards or things like that. <laughs> yeah, the, Reddit, are... Reddit pages for wine. <laughs> yeah. Was your first uh, book Passion for Pinot? That was actually my first book. And um, it's actually, when I go back and look at it today, it's one of those ones, it's long out of print. And sometimes you can still find it stacked up for like one buck, you know, in a, uh, in a bookstore. <laughs> Uh, one of those rare things called bookstores, but uh, yeah, we're not sure yeah that was my first that. one. And that really came out also when I, I was sort of at a place in my career where I said, oh, you know, I've been writing for magazines. I need to break through and do something else. And I had this opportunity with these two photographers who were in love with Pino and one was based in Oregon and one was based in California and they loved my writing. So they approached me to kind of put a book length essay about Pinot Noir to their photographs. So that's how that one came out. Okay. Well, and I want to let you know that um, spell check changed it to Pinto. So it says passion for Pinto on my, my notes. So, just so, <laughs> so it's appropriate. For appropriate. This, yeah, I know. That's what I was like. like yeah. <laughs> 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 just like, like, what, why is this? Like, okay. So that was well, wine uh, with Pinto, you know, <laughs> <laughs> how did you get your connection with Raj then? Was that, that oh. was your next book, right? Yeah. So, um, so, you know, that came through being in San Francisco and um, yeah, there you go. Uh, and then the, uh, our first book was Secrets of the Sommeliers. And that one, that, so, so I'll just briefly tell this story. Yeah. 
when I first got into Austin and or into San Francisco and I lived there for about a year and early on in that I had the chance to become the columnist for this sort of younger skewing metro magazine called seven by seven and I had a really great food editor there and she proposed this story called sommelier confidential which was going to be the wine take on Anthony Bourdain's kitchen confidential ah. which was like the the sort of st the backstories the things that you don't want to they don't want to tell you or they don't want you to know in the wine world of restaurants and so I didn't having just come from Texas, not really knowing very much about what sommeliers were, not knowing many people in the wine world in San Francisco yet, I did ask one person, I, the one person I did know, I asked her to give me three names of people that would be good sources for this article. And so I diligently called them up. And in one week, I went and met with all of them. One was the very famous master sommelier, Larry Stone, who had a restaurant at the time called Rubicon, which was considered the great wine restaurant of America, basically, at least on the West Coast. And then the other person was Rajat Parr. And then he was a wine director of a, for the Michael Mina, a new restaurant there. And then the other was a young woman named Christy Dufault. And I went and visited all three of those people during the same week and the irony or the, the great coincidence is that I ended up uh, marrying Christy. Uh, she was wine director at a place called Gary Danko. Larry Stone oh. performed our wedding ceremony and Rajat was there sabering a magnum of Bollinger as we walked up the aisle, you know, and then I would end up working with him for, you know, decades to come. So oh, that's how the movie ends, that, but that yeah. it didn't yeah. end, but that's wow, that's, that's yeah. amazing. So that was like the week that, kind of changed my life the first time and then and then it was meeting Aaron that changed my life so those were what like, year what year was it that you were doing that article that was about 2003 you know was that supposed to be was that going to be a book or was it something that was going to be a piece of oh no it was just it was a feature in the magazine and it would have been very difficult to be a book because the the funny the backstory is that a lot of the sommeliers didn't really want to give me very good information because they still have clients that they sold expensive wines to. And in fact, my lengthy flirtation with Christy was that she gave me the very best story of any of them for the article that was going to be my anchor piece. And then she tried to retract it because she thought <laughs> better of uh, that this guy that she, you know, the was talking about is a frequent guest and she didn't want to offend him. So she and I had an ongoing negotiation as I tried to get her to let me use the story. Ah, uh, and that's probably what maybe built your relationship with her too. Oh that's, yeah. That's, yeah sure. And you guys got married, I think I read uh, in a vineyard, right? Yeah, we got married in a vineyard up on Sonoma Mountain in Sonoma. She wanted to get married in Napa, but I was like, no way, no, I, I was a Sonoma guy. So we, uh, so yeah, we, we found a vineyard up there very close to a great winery called Laurel Glen. And yeah, we had a beautiful wedding at the end of April. And, and you know, the funny thing also is that uh, when, I, when I did meet her, I, I thought, you know, all of these people were way out of my league. She was making a good salary at one of the top restaurants in the country with, you know, a grand award-winning wine list. All, uh, that was because I didn't even know much about 
um, fine wine. In Austin, mostly it was Italian wine that I had access to. And then of course, hmm. California. And then she, you know, I took the, I remember taking the bus across town to get there. She was driving a sports car and stuff. You know, I felt completely out of my league. And, and of course she was wearing a suit when she ushered me in and she said, she was the only of those three people to say, oh, would you like to go into our private dining room? Can I offer you a glass of champagne while we talk? So uh, always, oh, she's, she's the it best. It sounds like she was courting you. <laughs> yeah, I know. From the get-go. <laughs> well, maybe There's she a reason. Subconsciously, yeah. maybe. She's also just very, very famous for her hospitality. Now, you know, and then for the, for the longest time, she's still currently a wine and beverage professor at the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. Over, no, I, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> in no Napa, big deal. Uh, is, it, is there still one in Napa? There is. She worked at the one in Napa for a decade. And then just last year, we moved across the country to the East Coast. And so now we're outside of the CIA in Hyde Park. Okay, is that so? That's why Beautiful I was gonna. Area. I, was, I was gonna ask why you moved. Is that probably why you? Moved? I asked myself that too. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's one of the reasons. I was just gonna say. So you, your storyline is sort of in line with mine. I was actually in San Francisco for culinary school from mm. 2005 to 2006, mm-hmm. and then and then I moved to New York. So we went from Texas to San Francisco. Oh, wow. And she, she won't tell you maybe, but she worked at Per Se. Oh, did you really? Oh, so you were very yeah. serious in the kitchen. I, I was trying to be, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt out of my league every step of the way. I still do. Being in the mm-hmm. wine world as a chef is very humbling because I everybody I meet, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I just want to learn as much as I can and have fun doing it. Well, I think, you know, since I've gone through all of the spirals of the wine world, I think that's the very, very best approach, no matter what. And that's what I try to take. I, I'm not nearly as geeky as I used to be even. And, uh, and your approach is exactly what, what I try to do. But Raj, then you, did you choose out of those three? Oh. Did, you, did you say yeah, that did Raj, did Rajat, did he seem to be the person that would make more, most sense to write oh, a, well, a book with? Or that's how a very good I... question. That's a very good question. Well, Raj, Raj was sort of, it was a little bit of a natural thing. Raj was kind of this rising persona at the time. He, you know, he was just, he's an object of fascination for lots of people because, because of his background, because of his incredible blind tasting acumen. And I think because of his ability, his just, his opinion, you know, he was very opinionated he was not afraid to, to really stick his neck out and make statements. And so he became a little bit of a lightning rod, which garnered him a lot of press, which he did not avoid. Uh, Larry, Larry is you know, the most professorial of all kinds of people. And he's been in the press a lot, of course, but he's not quite the same galvanizing figure. And Christy, I would, we actually did do a book together for William Sonoma, it's called Two in the Kitchen, but oh, yeah. she, She's very, very oriented. And, and at the time uh, she was, after we got married, she was at this restaurant Quince for a few years. Huh. She's very oriented towards service and her job. So she, she's never actually sought any sort of limelight. When you describe his palate and the way that he has probably the most refined, like he, he could, it, it's just, it, it's mind boggling how you describe yeah. Raj. I just, I, because I, had, I, had, I didn't know. And actually the person that, that uh, when I came to Aaron and I said, I'd like some books to just to start to get my knowledge back with wine and to learn more. 
this was specifically the book that she told me and that was and i think i had maybe put it on instagram and then that's sort of how you and i uh, uh-huh. connected yeah, yeah. but i was just uh, it's, it's astonishing how his palette and do you feel like yeah. how how do you what do you how do you gauge your palette my palette is uh is pretty good you know the what i've really learned over the time like when when i when raj and i spent many months in europe traveling around writing the Atlas of Taste there, you know, we on separate trips. And whenever I'd come back from one of these month long trips, I my palate was in incredible condition, like an athlete getting ready for the season. I was, you know, I was nailing blind tastings and very good, not quite at Raj's level, but certainly I think just being tasting wine constantly and really thinking about it and keeping your palate fit is is really helpful so so you can train yourself up but not quite to raj's level which you know getting vineyards and vintages like he does all the time uh is really impressive and i've you know i've described it as almost like his uh he he speaks a different language of wine in in a way it's it's like that you know that it's when he tastes it must be something a deeper connection than even than even i can get you know and that's interesting that you've worked with both he and Aaron Franklin. That's, there's two yeah. different. Like... Yeah. No, it is. And, you know, but also, also I will say this, Raj, no one, you know, or very few people in the world have tasted more wine and more of these same wines more times than Raj has. He, he was a true maniac who for years and years, years travel all around all the time tasting and he got the opportunity because once he became developed his reputation, you know, everywhere he'd go, people would bring him a, a taste of this, people, you know, see him across a restaurant and walk and ask the waiter to give him a, a little taste of whatever they were drinking. You know, that's and all the time and all over the place. And he would visit the domains. And so he, you know, he really, really had this incredible library of wines mentally with which to draw on for the for blind taste. One thing about Raj that I think is so great. Like if you're, if you're our generation and you're into wine, you know, you know who Raj is and he's so talented, so special, but he's so accessible. Like when you meet him and he's very social, he's out there all the time. I and mean, he's, he's at wine events. He visits, you know, cities and, and gets himself out there and he's so accessible. And so it really starts to make it feel like you you can attach yourself to that a little bit and learn from him and I think that's what's so special about him is that he's this super talented enigma of a person but if you want to have a conversation with him and he's in the room you probably can and that that's great yeah you know I I'm I'm so glad you pointed that out because it's really true and you know you can even say similar things about Aaron Franklin he yeah. is not quite as accessible these days as Raj tends to be, but the food and barbecue world is also dwarfs the wine world. And so, you know, it, uh, he has to protect his little personal space a little bit more. But, you know, as far as, you know, and Raj is the same way. Yeah, he loves to meet people. He's so open. He loves to help people. And Aaron, Aaron also is incredibly generous with his time and his expertise. One question that I want to make sure that we that we don't forget is how would you like what would your criteria be for to putting together a wine list for a barbecue joint? Mm. Oh wow. Wow. Well, you know, it's 
it's a really good question, and and I'm I, I I'm glad I would love to have this conversation. And Aaron, that's and I do want to hear your approach and what you've been doing because uh, barbecue and wine, of course, of course, you know, I, I've written articles about it for this and that. It's always a subject that comes up, and yet there are very few barbecue places that had any sort of ambitious approach to wine, or even ambitious is probably too big a word, even any approach to wine yeah. whatsoever. You know, I remember it's the one, the Pecan Lodge up in, is that, that's in Dallas? Yeah. They, um, that was one of the first places I went to that had some sort of more serious, not serious wines, but wine selections with some intention, I felt, you know, yeah. but I think, you know, it's, gosh, it's a tough question. The because not every, and again, Aaron, I would like to hear what you have yeah, to say. I want to hear not every ways. red wine, just because a wine is big and red doesn't mean it's going to go well with barbecue, you know? And I would say that, you know, acidity of course is important, but, you know, but it's not everything. Even then there's, it's a very, very complicated matrix of things that makes a specific wine work with barbecue. And then even beyond that, I would think now more that, you know, that, the kind of smoking you're doing, the kind of wood you're using, you know, and the, the temperatures, the, all of that can really, really affect. So it, it's very difficult to say exactly. I think any, you know, hopefully more barbecue people will get into wine and they will really know their thing, their own meats and their own sides and things like that, and be able to hone in on what works well there. But, but I think, you know, you know, the last time, just not too long ago, I smoked a pork shoulder with a friend and we had a, it's not even a wine I drink very often, but it was a, a Chateau Neuf du Pop that was from Pegao, Domaine de Pegao, which is, you know, one of the great legendary houses. And that was amazing. The, the roast pork shoulder with this, uh, with this delicious 2020 Domaine de Pegao Cuvée Reserve Chateau Neuf was a tremendous match. It was yeah. much better than the, the Burgundy. Yeah. But Aaron, you found that different wines, like you, and you've also, you've had to navigate your clientele too. Like, so it's a customer yeah. base too, right? Oh, I mean, it, just like any of the things that we've talked about, it's complex, right? It's a small menu. We're trying to navigate the wine world with a wine, or the, the barbecue world with a wine menu. So we didn't really have an example of what would work and what were people wanting. I come from Camerata, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And that's really where my wine education began first under David Keck and then uh, Chris Paul Doyen, who was our guest on the last podcast. And so a lot of those foundations that I have in, in my wine education come from them. And it's been really important to us on our wine menu that you use the word intention, there's intention behind every one of our wines. And the intention is different. Um, sometimes it's the specific winemaker that we really like and want to um, support. And we support like their mission and what they stand for. Um, sometimes it's the wine itself. Like, how do I want to, like, how do I envision myself enjoying this wine? So it might not have anything to do with structure, acidity or anything like that. It might just simply be, this is a great, this is a really good patio wine. And the producer is somebody I can really get behind. And I think that with a little bit of education, our guests can embrace this. And then, and then some things have to be super straightforward. Um, we can't have everything be hard to pronounce or educational, or here's this obscure region you've never heard of that we need to start supporting. 
some of it has to be, here's the Texas wine. Um, but again, we're super selective in how we choose even our Texas wines. And there's, there's now some pretty good producers. Um, mm-hmm. And the way you describe Texas wine when you first wrote that article for Texas Monthly is how I would have described Texas wine, you know, even a decade ago. And it's changed quite a bit because we're getting people with a lot of interests and dedication to the craft here, but it's still young, right? So there's, there's still a lot of room for improvement. Um, but we have Southhold Farm and Cellars on our menu. Um, and I, I really like supporting them. There's a couple um, behind Alta Marfa, which is out of far West Texas. Um, mm-hmm. And heard of that one. Yeah, so they're super little. In fact, the wife, um, her name is Katie. She's She was on our original team when we opened our restaurant. So we have them on the menu from time to time. They're super limited production. So we we are not able to really keep them around for long. But um, those are some of the Texas people we want to support. And Texas wine sells. If it's on our menu and it's from Texas, it sells. So we want to take that power. Like, okay, so we, we know if we put something on the list from Texas that you guys are going to buy it. So we take that power and we say, we're going to make sure it's a producer that we want to support that's using practices that, that we you know, agree with and um, that we want to support. And so our menu is small, but I feel like everything on there, I can sit there and say, this is why we chose this. This is why we chose this. And sometimes it's literally just structure. Like this is a great wine for barbecue. That makes up probably 20% of our wine list. The rest is, you know, these are producers that we love. These are people that that we want to work with, that we want to develop a relationship with. Um, and so it's it's fun to kind of keep building that and to keep meeting mm-hmm. new producers. We are in a unique little situation now. A lot of our top selling wines, some of them from Oregon, are not available because the next vintage uh, is affected by the, the different you know, climate effects and forest fires. Oh, yeah. And so we oh. were kind of scrambling, like scrambling to, to find replacements that still fit the flavor profile that our customers have come to like, but also, you know, producers that we want to support. And so I noticed in your book, um, cause I read your book before all of this, um, climate stuff was really, really at the forefront of winemaking. Um, but you guys even reference like climate stuff in your book. And I'm just, it'd be fascinating if you guys could, you and Raj could get together and do like a little update climate. Here's what's happening in the wine world because it's, it's such a big impact right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, no, it really is. And I'm, I'm getting more interested in that, in that topic. I I think for a long time, I, I was just like, we knew it was coming, but, but now I, the actual the gradations of what it's going to look like, what it's going to uh, taste like, you know, as mm-hmm. regions adapt, I think will be really fascinating. And thank you. That's another, we've had a couple, I've recently, I've had a couple of good suggestions for going back to that book <laughs> and updating it. So I don't, maybe, maybe I'll approach Raj and see if he wants to do something like that. I, I love what you just said though. I love the fact that Texas wines are selling and, you know, I, um, a few years ago, I went back and did, a, I came back and did another wine piece for Texas Monthly that was sort of like 15 years after I wrote my very first one when I had no idea that I was going to have a career writing about wine. Um, I came back and kind of explored the, the changes in Texas. I wine. read that last but, night. Yeah. And it was a really fun piece because I looked both at, at producers. I looked up some of the ones I wrote about originally, but then I also went to, you know, I'd been going to Texom for a number of years, which would have been unimaginable 15 years earlier when I, that, that 
Texas would host the nation's premier sommelier yeah. com, uh, convention and all of that. But I certainly have discovered a lot of, you know, quite good, at least very, very palatable wines from Texas and, you know, red, red white and rosé. I, I personally think that Texas has a great future in rosé. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a, it's a natural, you know, that you could make in Texas pretty well without much manipulation and also happens to be often very, you know, flexible with any food, but especially mm -hmm. what might come on a barbecue platter. You know, you can always, you can always just pop a bottle of cold rosé and it's going to work. But anyway, I love the fact that people are, are drinking those wines and that you're selecting great ones and introducing them and helping out those producers. And also, you know, for the other, the rest of the list, I completely agree. Sometimes you just want to drink what you want to drink and eat what you want to eat. And they don't, you know, as long as they don't create a negative taste in your mouth, then, yeah. you know, then it, that's just also great. Yeah. Is there, Aaron, is there a wine that you're surprised is popular? So actually the, one of the wines that, that I have for us to talk about today is the, it's a wine from a small region in Northern Spain called Chocoli mm -hmm. and it's in the Basque country. I thought that it would be hard to sell simply because it's such a foreign way to read the way the, the letters of the language are even um, put X's together. And and, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, people are going to look at that on the menu and it, it's, it's just going to be so um, prohibitive. They're going to look at it and say, I can't say it. I'm not going to, not going to buy yeah. it. And even our staff, I can't say it. I'm not going to try yeah. to sell it because you yeah. know, our, our staff, we don't have wine professionals. We have That's hired, other. Bar, you know, these are barbecue people running a register. Um, so mm. the wine education factor plays into a lot of our decisions as well when we're trying to pick our selections. But the, um, so we have the Amistoy um, yeah. Rosé from Chocolate. And it's, I think it's, it sells really well. This is one of the larger producers, even though it's like a smaller wine region, this is one of the larger producers on our menu. Um, I really like Reservoir, which another is another producer in the region, smaller, more family oriented. We work with a small number of distributors. And so we're somewhat limited. I can't just say, hey, I want this one wine and it magically appears. But we showed the Perone to our staff early on. And I mm -hmm. think um, that makes it kind of fun and interesting. But it's it's a good Houston wine. It's It's so enjoyable on a hot day. Um, it's light bodied, it's young, it's, it's meant to be consumed quickly. And so I think it really does well with the barbecue format because it's fun and interesting, but just from a wine, like if you were to take all the fun gimmicky stuff out of it and you just looked at it as a wine, it's actually like a really fun barbecue wine. I also, I pulled this just because I saw that Jordan Salcido was uh -huh. uh, in your book. She's a friend of mine and the Ramona does well, but those are things that I think like Ramona does well because it's in a can and it seems a little bit more approachable. Some of our wines that I did not expect to do well that do are, um, we have an Arminian sparkling wine um, mm. from Kush. It's super high elevation. Um, so it has, it has a really nice acidity, but I, I just, I think people have really opened up to it and, and that's, I think it says a lot about our clientele. I'm going through our wine list. We, we have some really, really great red wines. Um, Stoltman La Quadria, I'm sure you're familiar. Sure, yeah. Um, which the, the Stoltman guys are great. Um, La Quadria is kind of perfect for our menu. It's the right price point. 
Um, it's mm -hmm. an approachable wine, but mm -hmm. our staff resonates with the story. I mean, the fact that, you know, the money goes back to the farmers. I mean, when you're trying to explain that to somebody who's running a register and you're talking about how this really supports like, you know, all the hands that are involved, that means something to them. And so they, they will sell it. Um, so that yeah. wine does, that wine does really well. Because you get people coming with no not wine knowledge at all or very little yeah. and they're asking for some help and they're asking for what should they choose right yeah they ask that a lot and um that used to be i think a really intimidating question for our staff and now they're you know we're nine months open with their second concept and our second concept is the concept that has the wine and the the staff have really embraced their wine knowledge and nice. um it's, it's it's fun i mean it's very limited to just what's on our menu and um, we have to be really careful about what we select so that it's not overwhelming, um, for them, but, but it's been great. So yeah, we have some really interesting wines that actually sell well. Um, and I think a lot of the, the trick to that is just getting the staff to get behind it and, and understand it and support it. But Let yeah, we keep you, our um, menu small. I have two questions. One, are you, is, is the second place are you getting customers, is it becoming a destination for people who are interested in exploring wine with barbecue? Is this part of the reputation that's drawing in customers? I think maybe just a small, small mm. bit of that, not, not, not in any like large impactful way. Right. We have a lot of people that come in and will order wine with their barbecue. So when I just walk into the dining room and the dining room is busy, um, I'll see wine glasses at a majority of the tables. And that is what I love. But when I ask my staff about, you know, how are the interactions with the guests? Um, I think for the most part, they're just looking at the menu saying, oh, there's wine. Okay. And then they, you know, figure out which wine they're going to order. There are some people that come in specifically because they like our wine list and they'll come for happy hours. Sometimes they don't really eat barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they do. I think people generally speaking have concluded that wine is a good pairing for barbecue but I don't think that anybody has said this is you know this is this reason that we're here we want to eat barbecue and wine except for Daniel Vaughn Daniel Vaughn has said repeatedly that that he really appreciates our wine list um I've poured through like all of our wines with him um obviously while he was eating barbecue and I think there's something really particular about the market of people that are very barbecue they're very involved in the barbecue world and they've been eating barbecue on a regular basis for you know 10 plus years now and they're looking for a different experience and we're, we're able to offer that um mm -hmm. and, and so I love that there's people that can appreciate it I just don't know that it's a huge amount of people right right well I'm sure that will grow I'm sure that will grow as as you continue down this path and you know, I'm I'm thrilled to hear that Daniel likes wine. I, I I'm not sure I knew that, you know, because if anyone, at least as far as tasting volume, is he's definitely the risotto par of, uh, of the barbecue. World. There you go. <laughs> yes, that's a good analogy. <laughs> that's but, that's um, his new moniker. <laughs> but I also wanted to ask you what, um, just out of my own curiosity, uh, and pairing pairing wise. What have you found white wine wise that, that goes well with the food that you have? Yeah. So one of my favorite pairings we did, um, we hosted a wines of Germany event 
uh, at our barbecue restaurant in August. And it was the first, I mean, we'd only been open for about a month and a half and it was this massive, I don't, we didn't deserve to be hosting this event. It was the biggest thing we've ever done. Um, and we were so new, but, um, we worked very closely with the wines of Germany organization to select wines and pair them with things that were already on our menu. And we have a chicken, just a, a half smoked chicken with Alabama white sauce and Alabama white sauce. If you're not familiar is a mayonnaise bait sauce with horseradish, um, and for in ours, we have um, applesauce, apple or sorry, apple juice, apple cider vinegar, and then a lot of spices. So it's got a little bit of kick to it, but it, it's it's an interesting flavor, and it's something that I think would be pretty challenging to pair a wine with. I mean, horseradish is just so overpowering. But we were able to we we had a really interesting set of wines that evening, things that we don't normally have on our menu that, that we were able to secure because of wines of Germany. Um, and I just thought that there was nothing that we drank that didn't go beautifully with barbecue. Um, we had barrel X, we did Peter Lauer. So you had dry and off dry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I actually think, um, so we, we opened a Shoy Reba, which was my first experience with Shoy Reba. That was really one of the only sweeter wines that we had. Um, a lot of the wines we were offering were, were dry, but the acidity was really good. Not that that's the, you know, the only important factor, but I thought that like, if we could get those wines regularly, they were at a higher price point than what we typically, um, want to keep our menu at. Mm -hmm. uh, there was nothing we drank that wouldn't have been beautiful. Even the, the Pinots there, you know, those lighter body uh, mm -hmm. Pinot Noirs. I, and I think sometimes a lighter red is actually a better pairing for barbecue. Um, if it, if you can get the right structure um, because they complement each other instead of, you know, it, it works really well, work, works really well in your, um, on your palate. Sure. Um, yeah. We poured the Laloon uh, Cabernet Sauvignon recently for a, a private dinner that we were doing with some smoked meats. It wasn't barbecue specific, mm -hmm. but it was smoked meats. And it was a lighter style than uh, most people would expect from a, a Cabernet Sauvignon. But it was, I think, one of the best pairings mm -hmm. that we've ever actually done where it was an intentional pairing. This goes with this. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really beautiful. Wow. That's awesome. I think that I don't pe most people in their minds think that it has to be like a heavy Cabernet or a full body bourbon or Scott, like it's, they, they, people in their minds think that those work best, but what you're describing and what I've learned on this show and what I've learned with Aaron is that that's not always, that's definitely not the case. No, I think, you know, I think often it's not that, that the, as much as you you want to put like and like together, usually our mouths prefer a little bit of contrast um, and as well as some complementary flavors. But if it's all complementary, so a big, rich, heavy red wine with thick brisket, thick, fatty, unctuous brisket, especially if there's not much tannin in the red wine or if it's so soft and there's no acidity there and you have like a sweet barbecue sauce or semi-sweet barbecue sauce with it, it's just going to be too much of the same thing, you know, and <clears throat> instead you definitely want that lighter red, a more, a more perky Cabernet or Syrah, you know, Syrah is often great because it has, uh, it has some of these gamey pithy qualities, but it's also, 
It's also usually has some tannin and good acidity. And so I think that, you know, that, yeah, like I, I don't tend to love big, heavy, rich mm-hmm. red wines as much as I did when I was just starting out, you know, but um, there's always a place for them, of course. But I but, think that's a lot of people's case. Yeah, they yes, were. Yes, of course. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> pretty common. But that's but that's definitely the case with barbecue. I think so. Yeah, lighter lighter wines, as long as they have as long as they have enough depth and intensity to handle the intensity of barbecue. And your favorite pairing with steak wasn't it? A, didn't I read a Syrah from the Rhone? Um, well, so I don't necessarily have a favorite pairing with steak. That was with the the favorite the Rhone Syrah was also that's with uh that's with chicken Zuni chicken specifically from San Francisco which by the way is cooked in a wood-fired oven with uh, it's got it comes out with a little bit of a wood smoke everyone who says Mm -hmm. they make Zuni chicken at home you better add some smoke on it because otherwise it's not proper Uh, no Raj Raj clued me into that like that and Northern Rhone Syrah Cote Roti San Joseph Hermitage is amazing and I always to this day, even roast chicken, if it's not smoked, um, that's a wonderful contrast. You might think white wine and chicken or Pinot Noir, but actually Syrah is a great contrasting uh, sort of pairing with chicken. With with steak, you can do so much, you know, you can do all kinds of things with steak. It's really a, um, it's really an open palate, I think. Or, um, But, you know, I did want to say you held up the Amitzoy, the, the Chakoli, you know, I, w- I will make a case. I love that part of the world, Basque country. If you've not visited, should be high on your list of food destinations because that's also, I mean, the seafood there is incredible, but also where I've had the most memorable tasting beef ever in my life. Yeah, it was. Echibari? Yes, yeah. Echibari and other places. They're on my honeymoon. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, that's that's one my probably my favorite restaurant in the world and yeah. uh, oh wow and the but the beef that they have in northern spain when you can find it is you know and, and i talk about it in the steak book that was one of my that was one of my revelations i i sort of like pushed the steak book more than aaron aaron was sort of late to sign on to that but i'm so glad he did and and part of that was just we always you know steak is the kind of thing we just always love and we always eat and it's it's never it's almost never bad it might be disappointing but it's never bad sort of like uh, pizza pizza and um (laughs) and anyway i had had this revelation traveling in spain for the for the atlas of taste book actually with raj and we were at some place in just kind of a ran random town after seeing this wonderful winery called commando g these three guys making incredible Grenache in the mountains outside of Madrid. And, you know, we, we went to this place for lunch and I just, it was like, you know, like a lot of Spain, it was just meat on the menu, basically like pages and pages. So I ordered just a chuleta, uh, a ribeye, and I took one bite and I said, Oh my God, this is probably the best steak I've ever tasted in my life. Do I need to suddenly write a book about steak, you know, because I didn't think any really existed um, or anything meaningful. So it was really with one bite that I had a revelation there and ended up pursuing it. And then while working on the steak book, sadly, Aaron couldn't go with me for this research trip because he has just so many responsibilities in Austin and with his family. Um, But I went and spent a week with another friend who lives in Paris, <clears throat> just in the Basque country, 
going only to asadors to to oh. big places. <laughs> the best way I hate you oh, God. yeah <laughs> and a couple of and a couple of very serious fish places because there's a couple of places on the coast that do whole turbo that's mm-hmm. basically like the steak of fish um, and they do it on the grill um, but anyway so you know and that's where and 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 that's where you know I talk about it and I anyone who's interested you know this this phenomenon of older cows and that had not come to the U.S. I think I started to help popularize it as well as other people who'd gone to Spain and, and had the meat from older cows. And now it's gaining a little traction here. Daniel Vaughn, who we talked about, wrote a few, um, uh, wrote an article about it a few years ago and tried some with, with uh, mixed results, I think, and, and attempts at eating older, you know, cows that not aged beef. It's not aged beef, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's older cows. Yeah. It's, and that's a big, big difference. But, um, but, you know, it's been sort of mixed results. I haven't had anything in this country as good as I had in Spain. And that just, you know, that is indicative of there being a real culture for that there and not one here. And there's got to be some secrets to raising that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, because it's in the book and it's a big portion of the book is about grass fed beef, because mm-hmm. I think there's something that you describe that I've talked to a lot of people. A lot of people say, I don't like grass fed beef because it's, livery or gamey or maybe even tough and so but that's it that but there's a reason for that right yeah yeah i think so i i've obviously put a lot of thought into this and i don't even know that i was able to get into it in quite as much detail as i wanted in the steak book but um but yes i so i'm a i'm a big supporter of grass-fed beef and I think, you know, that's the natural place where cattle should be raised. Um, and of course, all of them are, except for three or four months of their lives. But I, I love a grass-finished cow. The thing that I've really learned is that the best meat from beef from grass, grass-fed beef, the ranchers need to almost think of themselves as grass farmers more than cattle ranchers. Hmm. That growing great grass and forage for your animals there's an art to that. And it's wow. not that different from the art of growing grapes or whatever. Of course, not quite as intricate and doesn't require <laughs> as much handwork, but it involves, it involves being in the right place, you know? So, you know, there are, there is a terroir element to it. It involves growing a diverse enough mix of forbs and herbs and flowers and weeds and grasses, you know, and, and then it involves shifting, you know, rotational grazing so that the cattle are, are eating green grass, rich, fresh green grass that's ripe. And I learned from another book that, that you know, grass at its, when it's really ripe, can be up at the BRICS levels that people pick grapes at. The sugar content of oh. grass can be up to 22, 23%. And so, yes, you can raise cattle that will receive prime grade, you know, on grass, if you do it right. And the problem is that just a lot of people don't take that into account. I would say most people don't take that into account. They don't have that ambition. They aren't seeking to create great grass-fed beef and they just put the cattle out there and let them graze. And often that's how cattle do damage to a landscape as well. So I think that maybe, you know, that we just haven't quite gotten there in a lot of America yet as to the art of grass-fed beef, but wow. I'm, I'm sure we'll get there. That's fascinating. Yeah, and <laughs> also the, the last thing is it, the, the commitment is also greater because to 
um, on today's schedule, like the, you know, having a cattle, a cow finished or steer finished in 16 months or something like that, you know, that's a tremendous amount of growth that has to happen in a very short time. And on grass, the growth is not going to be as fast because there's not as many calories in the grass as there are in corn and grain for all of this time. And so truly it should take them another year or two, which would also allow the meat to become more flavorful, just like mutton is more flavorful than lamb, you know, and for good or bad, some people don't like lamb flavor, but if you let that sheep get older, then you've got mutton and it's going to be a stronger lamb flavor. And the same would be true with grass-fed beef. So if people were able to keep them, get, let their cows get bigger, but keep them for an extra year or two and be on that cycle rather than on this short-term cycle of industrial beef, then I think that we could really start seeing some great results. Wow. That's- yeah, <laughs> I, I think this goes back to our value system as a country. Um, the farmers, there's almost no incentive for them to do the grass-fed process because there's such a small margin on mm-hmm. what they're doing to begin with. There's way too much risk. And, and as you increase the cost to raise a single head of cattle, you increase the risk substantially for them financially. And our government just doesn't really support that. And I think some of it's like consumer driven. So, you know, it's all cyclical. I don't know what comes first, but one thing certainly influences the other influences the other. And it's something that other countries have been able to avoid. Um, but we're like so deep into it as, as like a, an ag community. I don't know how we get out. Right. No, it's really true. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a firm believer that cattle are actually good for the environment, as I'm sure you've read about how they build soil, but they have to be raised properly to do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, given the size of American ranches and the, the just we got into this whole thing about just letting cows go and graze and they can, as, as I said before, they can really beat down a landscape by overgrazing in a spot rather than being driven around and, and, you know, allowing grass, that's regenerative ranching, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's doing that, but, but they can be a net positive for the world and provide great solar powered, nutritious beef, you know, if it's done right, we just have not collectively made a commitment. And that's changing. I've gone to some, you know, grass fed conferences and things like that, and talk to people and scientists, and there are more and more people becoming interested in this and especially it can be shown to them that they can go carbon neutral. They can raise better, more nutritious beef that way and actually even improve their bottom line. But they mm-hmm. just have to make this change from their regular systems and rhythms. And as you said, change is, is really hard. Yeah. yeah. In, just about, in just about everything. You talk a little bit about the flavor and marbling and how you know, there's some science that might actually suggest that that's not really, that fat might not actually be where the flavor is coming from. And I know that might segue into the, the age on the, the beef, but what did you discover? Like when you were doing that? Yeah, that's, you know, I, I really delved into that and um, I, I sort of hit a few dead ends. I think, I think fat is definitely part of the flavor because I know when I render out beef tallow and things like that, uh, which I do when I'm making like bone stocks and things like that. And I end up, you know, marrow bones and I end up with really beautifully rendered tallow, which I cook with, or I 
melt a little bit to mix into the dog's food. And I can smell this like incredibly, incredibly gamey, like high pitched Mm -hmm. aromas of the beef tallow, which are both sort of alluring and somewhat off-putting sometimes too. And so I know that there are definitely flavor compounds in there, but, uh, but I don't, I think one of the scientists I believe I talked to or I've read is, you know, fat's main job is actually to sort of move flavor compounds around in the mouth. So, so when the fat melts in our mouth and we're chewing that it helps to actually distribute to all of our um, taste receptors the flavors. And I think a lot of the flavors are, um, are built more in the meat. However, maybe when you get to, you know, when you see really good grass-fed beef, especially from slightly older cows that, you know, and you get that yellow colored fat, and maybe you've seen that, you oh, know, yeah. and mm-hmm. you see that in Spain, that's incredible. And that is from beta carotene and things like this, that the uh, animals have absorbed over time into their fat. And the way, the reason we think of fat as always being white is because they have not had enough time and they've not spent enough time on nutritious, diverse forage for that to get into Mm. their fat yet, you know? And so what we're seeing is just the very basic, very basic minimum of what beef should taste like. And that's unfortunately what America is used to now. If we had a greater market for other things, I think we could start to see the incredible capability and flavor of great beef you know yeah you you talked so we talked about echabari earlier and mm-hmm. my husband and i went there uh we went to spain on our honeymoon and drove to echabari it was like a two-hour drive and did the wine pairings along with our meal and it's still to this day the best meal i've ever had and the best wine pairings i've ever had um but what was so fascinating about it is the last course you get um and, and to summarize, Echabari is not over the top, fancy, organic-y. It is very simple, very just phen- phenomenal plates, but they're just simple, perfectly executed dishes. Um, and the last course was like a bone-in. I don't know if it was a ribeye. I'm not even sure if that's like the real cut that they would have called it. But um, coming from Texas, which we think is like the, the home of beef, I have never tasted anything so delicious and so simple i mean it was fire salt pepper meat that was that was it yeah slice on a plate there there was no vegetable with it it was literally the last course was just this slab of meat and it it was memorable and i've had i've had steak throughout my whole life i mean i'm a big meat eater um it's that that's how much just the the handling of the animal um Mm -hmm. in a different environment but my understanding is we'll really never, we, we may soon, but, but right now, the reason we don't have meat like that in um, the U.S. is just all the regulations that, you know, they regulate the aging yes, um, um, in order to get certain prime grades like you, it has to be right. a, under yeah. a certain age. This is actually, yeah, there is one, there, there is one thing about that, that, uh, you know, the, the place that I consider the greatest steakhouse in the world is this place El Capricho northwest of Madrid I I gave a page to it in the steak book and he you know this guy Jose Gordon is amazing and he goes and buys up three-year-old bulls from around Spain and Portugal and the Azor Islands and he brings them to his ranch 
And so already at three years, these would be older than most cattle, you know, almost twice as old as most cattle slaughtered for beef in the US. And, um, and then he goes on to raise them for another five to eight years on his ranch to feed them. And then he harvests one or two a week for his restaurant. And it's also an incredible experience, like, uh, you know, cooked in the same Basque way, Northern Spanish way, just grilled over coals. And um, anyway, the process of just of aging that, you know, is just the, and letting the cattle get older is just so important. And and I just don't I don't see that really happening here. But there are a few places you can seek it out. There's this uh, uh, I mentioned them in the book called Carter Country. They're up in Wyoming. They discovered that they have just been keeping these large herds and many of the cattle there have gotten older. The beef that I've had from them doesn't quite get to Spanish level. But it's uh, but it's it's good. Are there any and, in the big cities? Can you think of any in? Um, no, no, oh, it's just. <laughs> so I, I saw there's a butcher that, that I follow on Instagram. I can't remember uh, what they're called in Seattle, and they recently had an hmm. offering to their local customers of some older stuff. Okay. So it's um it's really worth going to, and and also Aaron, I would just second what you say that like. That Echabari, unfortunately, it's now it's like on the San Pellegrino list, top five. It's it's the the secret is long out, and so it's it's gotten a little bit fancier now. For instance, it's hard to order a la carte; you have to kind of do the whole tasting menu. Uh -huh. But it's all the food is still as good, and and all of that is really really about his impeccable sourcing, and that's just you know that's the key to truly truly elite food is in general. Is, yeah, in general. And I know we all believe that. And it's easier or easier said than done for sure. But, but, you know, that's, if you want to go and taste every course where it's basically the thing itself in its peak is, uh, is that. And, and I would also just add, it's funny that it was such an inspiration and his grilling, by the way, is like, it's, it's so perfect and so precise and so delicate. It's, you know, he's truly, truly the, 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 the greatest kind of person on the grill that I've ever sampled his food. And I've been there a few times. Um, you know, it's just, the, it's like the tenderness he gets, just taking it off at the right time, get, but still just getting a kiss of smoke, not too much. It's not barbecue because uh -huh. everything is grilled over wood coals. That's what he, that's what he says is the most uh -huh. important thing is use wood coals. You can't do it with charcoal, but, but just the little whisper of smoke and then a perfectly grilled um, ingredient at its height of perfection is basically heaven, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. and salt, pepper, and olive oil. That's all he really You guys, oh, I wanna like, I, my cousin lives in Madrid. I need, to, <laughs> I need to go visit her and then go. Yes. Uh, so oh, here's well. our next field trip. We're gonna go to Spain, we're gonna okay. go to Echabari, and then we're gonna go to the Canary Islands. Okay, so part two of this with you, Jordan, will be that. We'll, we'll do that. Okay, you know, listen, <laughs> sign me up, sign me up. I, like, yeah. I wanna be on that field trip. I've got I'll, a question. I'll go drop of a hat. Yeah. You you kind of hinted in an email. And I don't know if that's something that you could talk about. You have another book coming out with Aaron. Yes, right. Oh, so no, it's perfect. Perfect segue. Um, we, uh, in fact, I was going to say that some of this was driven. This new book was driven in part by my experiences in Spain and at Echabari. Oh. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be called Franklin Smoke. It will be out next year. And it kind of is an omnibus about smoke and fire cooking, where we go beyond barbecue into the realm 
that people don't associate with Aaron, fish, vegetables. So the new book, you know, he's just, he's one of these people who's just like a natural at cooking meat, especially cooking. He just, he nails it every time. I overthink things. I'm like, oh no, it's overdone. It's over underdone. It's well, I meant for medium rare. And he just nails it and seemingly without any sort of effort, not really paying too much attention. He just has the touch. So, so we wanted to sort of mine that as well as his great, great creative mind for cooking these things. So the new book, it's got a healthy dose of fire pit cooking, which he's really kind of into because he loves camping, loves camping in central Texas. And so, um, and fire pit cooking, I think is something we think is something that's going to, um, that's going to get bigger um, because it's really got amazing flexibility between sort of the art of grilling and the art of smoking, which the, the intersection of which really this book is kind of about. So we have, we have some stuff that's grilling, we have a lot of fire pit. And then on top of that, Aaron has kind of gone back and really, really gotten his, he's, he's changed his brisket meta- methodology a little bit. Huh. And uh, he wanted to share that with everyone. So a big part of this book is also going to be if you thought like 10 or 11 pages devoted to brisket in the, uh, in the first book was excessive, get ready because uh, this is, this is like as deep a dive into stream of consciousness cooking brisket as I can imagine there ever will be. And wow. some of it goes over familiar territory, but there's, there's some kind of new, there's some new pathways I would say that he's, he's kind of figured out um, as far mm. as, temperatures and stuff like that so um so and and listen we know that he knows that he he gave it away you know in the first book but he still gets so many questions from people asking him you know what to do on brisket what people with the book who've studied it who just haven't developed the confidence yet so so we really wanted to just put this out to like satisfy all questions you Mm -hmm. know roughly what time of year is that coming out in the first um, quarter well probably sorry i just i have a standing desk and i lowered it um <laughs> you're st- you've been standing the whole time yeah i'm standing. I'm impressed yeah um <laughs> so uh that should that should be out next summer we're actually just finishing it right now so i'm i'm going okay. to austin next week in fact to uh do the last little bits with him and start with photography so will you be like, at hot luck are you sticking um, around i Oh, I haven't told Aaron this yet, but I'm on the fence. I told I was going to be there, but now I have to take this sort of this quickly devised trip um, because we needed to finish this book. Um, so are you going to Hot Luck? Yeah, my husband and I are, are participating. Oh. I would love to meet you. Oh, well, I would love to meet you. I was uh, going to say, I will have to come to Houston. Yeah, I was going to say, you should like, go to oh, <laughs> Man, maybe I'm going to give up Hot Luck because I have to be back in Austin after that for more photography i was like ah you know what i have a a family too how many times can i go to austin in a month but now that you're going to be there now i'm that oh i wish you hadn't told me we will have chances to meet each other i'm sure and 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 also aaron i've been doing these tours these barbecue joint and pit tours and aaron did a tour of the spring branch location she did a tour of both restaurants for my web my YouTube channel. So I'll send you a link to the Spring Branch yeah. just so you get an idea because you've asked a couple of questions about it. And I'll put a link below in the show notes for people. But so that way you can kind of get your mind's eye around what they have there. 
So this is really special and it's a beautiful I would location. Love, no, I'm Aaron, I'm so overdue a visit to Houston. You know, I have great friends, uh, pretty much only in wine there, not mm -hmm. in barbecue, but, uh, but I'm dying to get down and check out, you know, all the restaurants, everyone around the country talks about the Houston food scene. And I haven't had a chance to ever really explore that in any depth. And so it's very high on my list to get down there. And, um, but, but who knows, I might, I, I may, I may still go to hot luck. We'll see, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's a great, great time. And I have other, yeah. some other really close friends of mine who are, or uh, a good friends from California are going this year too, which is a big incentive for me. Yeah. I'll meet you guys there next year. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't no, I would love to go. I plan to be every year attendee for sure. Uh, that's great. Well, is there, is there anything that we missed and I, we could go on this has been yeah spectacular we can go on for another hour and a half two hours yeah. easily but i wanted to uh you know <laughs> our listeners or viewers who knows <laughs> with their attention man but i think this one oh for sure i would be if i was a viewer i'd be watching this the whole th way through this has been spectacular yeah. it's, it's been i i, I we, were, we were very excited to speak with you but i i didn't know how great this would be so thank you jordan yeah. so much for sharing all that and that was just wonderful. Well, I'm really big. It's so nice to meet both of you um, electronically. And I'm a big supporter of what you're doing. And I think it's great. And anyway, you bring such a nice attitude and um, and you have great background knowledge. So I, I think this is going to be a big success. And thank you for having me on. I'm really, really honored. And uh -huh. it's my great pleasure. And let's just plan on doing it again next year when yeah uh, when franklin smoke comes out you know yeah i was thinking that same thing yeah and um and so i would i don't think i don't think there's going to be a wine section in that but we'll have a lot more cooking to talk about excellent that sounds great well yeah. just so you know the honor is all ours this this was we were really excited about this so thank you so much yeah cool well i can't and, and Kevin, you know, I get down to LA periodically. I was just there actually. So I look forward to meeting both of you in For sure. person. Okay. Okay. And then we'll, thank you we'll so do much. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Have a great okay. day. Have a good Cheers. week. Our first wine that we are um, tasting today that's from our menu is the Amistoy Ruben Tis. It's a um, sparkling frizzante. So it's got it's it's got effervescence in it. It is not, it is not sparkling. It is, it just has like this tiny little touch of effervescence of carbonation. Yeah, um, fruit. yeah so you can see the bubbles. Um, yeah, so delicate. Ex very light bodied. So this is grown in Northern Spain. Um, very, very tip top of the country, very cold climates. It's a very dramatic coastline, but it yields this really light bodied, um, kind of pretty wine. It has a little salinity that you can detect. So if you drink it, um, you'll taste a little bit of the salt water. It's very um, windy and breezy and cold. And so that oh, air yeah. is just full of salt. So all the air that's just like hugging these grapes um, on a daily basis is full of like cold temperature salinity. Um, and I think it's just really cool when you can taste that in the glass. You can taste that. You, yeah, you can definitely shocking. taste it. Yeah, here. that's so good. Yeah. And then another kind of unique thing, you don't have to drink it using a Perone, um, but I have a Perone and this is something that you see with Spanish wines or at Carlos and Charlie's if you're ever in Cozumel. Um, but the, the proper use of the Perone is just to kind of pour the wine this way. I've read many reasons for why 
you know, why would you use a prone? I mean, yeah, I think that's some of the things I raised, read say you aerate it, but it's not really, that's not really like the true function of it. Honestly, I think it's just the vessel that was created, you know, years and years ago. And another thing I read, which I thought this was funny, and if this is in fact true, then shame on me. But they said that it was good for communal drinking because you could share the bottle without putting your lips on it. And I thought, oh, come on, please. But but it actually <laughs> it is kind of true coming off of the last two years. But yeah, it's a beautiful wine. And the, like a really interesting fact about the area where this is from, the ground type is called Fleisch and it's sedimentary rock that is uh, basically just piled on top of each other. So it looks like pancakes of rock, vertical. Um, oh. And and that certainly lends some of the terroir to the way this this wine is going to taste in your mouth. Um, but what it also did was created the perfect backdrop for Game of Thrones Dragonstone. So the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones, when um, they're filming more at Dragonstone, so this is for Game of Thrones nerds, including myself, um, <laughs> that is all filmed like like a hundred yards i might be exaggerating a little bit um from where this winery is i mean it is a stone's throw uh to where this winery is and it's that super dramatic coastline so when i said that earlier now you know what i mean it is a very dramatic coastline um there's so much about it that's unique to the area um but it's beautiful um what are you what are you pairing what are you in your mind pairing this with I mean, this is a barbecue tray wine. Like if you come in and, and order a platter of barbecue, I would recommend this any day, I agree. particularly if it's a warm day and you want to sit on the patio. This is a really, really nice wine. It's young. It's meant to be young. Um, when we were in Northern Spain visiting the wineries, a lot of them were pouring, they were putting our wine glass under um, the the aging steel and just pouring directly unfiltered into our wine glass because that's the preferred way to drink it. Um, obviously they have to bottle it in order to export it. Um, but otherwise I think they would prefer that you just walk up and, uh, and just like open the cask and, and pull from there. It's meant oh, to be young. You really... should not sit on this wine. Don't age this wine, drink it now. So come to Fuji's barbecue and drink this wine now. Are you, are you guys pouring it that way? Or is that just for this? We have that as an option, but for the most part, we're, um, you know, we're selling it by the glass and by the bottle mm-hmm. and you can always request a Perone. We are very happy to, uh, to get you the Perone and, <laughs> and have you drink it the way it was intended to be consumed. Oh my God. No, this is really good. And you could taste that. Uh, I could, I could, on my, my tongue, I can tell the salinity. It's that's amazing. Yeah. That's, it's different than anything I've ever had, but it's so easy to drink and especially and lots of good fruit on it. There's like some fruitiness. In the Right. Yeah. This is, um, these podcasts <laughs> are really, really good for you. <laughs> it's a breakfast. It's a, the perfect breakfast wine is what I'm telling people, but no, it's, it's really, a, it's an any time of day wine, no, 8 30 AM, 8 30 PM. You can drink this wine. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you pronounce it again? So the, um, it's Amestoy. Amestoy. Um, and this is from Chocolina. Chocolina. Two words that I'll never yeah, remember. Or Chocolina. Um, that's the, the region in Northern Spain in the Basque country. And then, so the next wine, we're going to go, we're just going to take a hard turn, hard turn. (laughs) We're going to pivot a whole different part of the world. Um, We are going to talk a little bit about our Graffito Cab Franc. Uh, This is from 2018. Um, It's a wine from Argentina. And 
I think this is the biggest wine we have on our list in terms of um, full-bodied, bold flavor. Okay. But in reality, it's not a huge wine by any stretch. It's just our our list definitely, I lean towards some of the lighter styles of breads um, as a preference with barbecue. So this is the, the biggest, most um, full-bodied wine we have on our list. Um, it is Cab Franc. It's got a really, really nice... Um, kind of spice element to it, raspberry notes. Oh, yeah. um, I think it's an amazing, it, it's just a really well-made wine. I love the wine. Um, it is a female wine producer in case anybody was wondering, no, why did we select this Graffito Cab Franc? Aside from it being a great, you know, great wine and a good wine with barbecue, it is uh, a, a phenomenal winemaker named Jimena Lopez. Um, and she's really she has a lot of influence and pull and is pioneering a lot uh, in the Argentinian winemaking realm. Um, and I think she is producing a really beautiful wine. Um, I like that even more. Very now, easy huh? to drink. Yeah. So when somebody comes in uh, and says they want something full bodied, this is what we pour. And, and we have converted a lot of people to this. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. And I, and I, I maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Cabernet Franc, isn't that, a lot of people blend with that, right? Yeah, it's a good blend. I mean, there's it's uh, on its own. I've always loved it on its own, but I always felt like when I see blends, they'll, they'll blend it. And I'm like, why are they blending it when? I mean, it some, there's there's a lot of reasons yeah. why you blend some grapes. Um, some grapes are really only are best uh, interpreted when blended. That makes sense. Some grapes are good on their own, good blended. You know, good however, it just depends on like the regional uh specs like a lot of bordeaux wines have a little bit of cab franc in them okay um but cab franc on his own is also you know it's a varietal wine um loire valley cab francs are, are lovely tend to be a little bit more light bodied um uh, but i think that's because it's like a new wave new generation of winemakers so that's the style that they're going for but obviously cab franc can yield something with a little bit more you know flavor and boldness but yeah this one i i just i absolutely love this wine it's 100 percent cab franc so good yeah yeah it's yeah delicious. really yeah, really good wine yeah and, they, and both the wines and it seems like this is sort of a uh, a repeat of what of the wines that you that we've talked about they're good on their own like it's not you're, yeah. you're, you're not creating a wine list that just just works with barbecue or just with your food you're actually creating wines that work if someone came in just to get a glass of wine or wanted to sit in the patio and have a glass of wine with a friend and talk that's that's yeah that's yeah. yeah yep. And this has been on, this is, this and the almond soy are OG. Those were on our list from the very beginning. Um, we've had availability issues with both, but they are now back, um, which is why oh, I wanted cool. to talk okay. about them today. So like um, for a little while, we couldn't get the almond soy, uh, but we have, you know, the 2021 vintage now. So that's back and hopefully we've got it for at least the next nine months until we run out again. And then the graffito is back. So you can rely on that's on its availability on our wine menu. And people can get it just, if, they, if this is their first time watching this, they can get it by the glass or they can get it a full bottle. Yes. And they could also get a bottle to go, right? Yes, you can get it by the glass, by the bottle, or we do retail. Those are wonderful. I wanted to talk to make sure that we did talk about you just, you and Patrick just got back from the certified beef, uh, is that what's called certified Angus beef? Certified Angus beef barbecue summit. Barbecue summit. Okay. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was a blast. We got back really late last night. Um, And so we spent three days in Worcester, Ohio, which is where the Certified Angus Beef headquarters are. And and full disclosure, we don't use Certified Angus Beef. Um, We 
have nothing against it. It's just not the um, choice that we have right now. And uh, so um, we use a prime booth, but I think that made it even more interesting to go visit them. They did not seem concerned that we weren't currently using their product. I think they wanted us to be up there. There were a mix of people. It was all barbecue people, but there were a mix of people that were current partners and then people like us that were not partners. I learned a ton about the ranching industry and the cattle industry, which which made it um, so much fun to know that we were going to have Jordan on as our guest today because we were able to um, talk about, you know, steak and meat and he's obviously very researched uh on it and has opinions which i think are fantastic um but no i learned so much um they are wonderful people i think it's a wonderful company and i hope we get invited back next year and we got to hang out with uh like evie mays was there blue oak barbecue heim barbecue some of those are their current partners they were all there i saw i saw artists but was mallory there too so Mallory couldn't make it at the last minute, but um, he, his guy, Joe, who's I think one of his pit masters was okay, there. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, so, but it was a good group. There were, there were more people than that. That's all, that's who I can think of. Swig and Swine Barbecue with them, uh, oh, Anthony. Anthony yeah. yeah, so it was a great group of people. It's, again, it's just like the barbecue community continues to just keep me so invested in what we're doing because I love, I love the barbecue community. I love hanging out and getting together. And so it was really fun. We met a lot of new people. A chance um, to really expand your horizon. Yes, I think the key job. takeaways, the key takeaways from that trip were from a, you know, from like an explanation standpoint, they really, uh, I think the point of it and why they had us all up there was really to show us how to utilize some of these other cuts of meat in ways that are more cost effective. Um, problem is in Texas, it's like brisket, brisket, brisket. But we learned so much um, about things that we can do. And so you might see some cool stuff uh, using other cuts uh, in the future on our menu or in a private dinner or something. Um, But it's also, you know, when you get all those pit masters together, we just all start talking shop, right? Like business practices, things that we're doing, what are we experiencing? What are we seeing? And so it's nice to get, you know, to hear things from, from outsiders that, uh, validate some of the things that we're feeling, some of the things that we're doing. It's important. You know, yeah, it's important. And and it was a really, really fun couple of days. Yeah. And I had, I had wanted to talk to Jordan about the fact that you guys do on Wednesday is steak night. And so I thought that, you know, you, with, yeah. with, with having steak night and having spring branch, you have an opportunity to, to, to mix things up differently than a yes. normal barbecue place. Yeah. And we're kind of like, we're figuring out what the future of our steak night is because it's uh, okay. changed some days. Some days it's like hugely successful and really popular. And then other days we don't really sell a lot of steaks. So we're really kind of trying to. Oh, that's interesting. That's good to know. Okay. Figure that out. Um, you know, what are people enjoying? What do we want to do? It has to be something, um, you know, if we prepare this dish, we can't just sit on all this extra product if we don't oh. sell it. Right. But we, we, I think we're introduced to a lot of really great ideas using some lesser known cuts of meat that will yield super tender, 
um, yeah. really like filet like almost steaks. Not to say that filet is the best steak, but just that really tender bite. But a lot of people are, love filet, yes. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people love like, and from cuts that are nowhere near the filet on the body, but also price wise that are nowhere near the filet, like things mm -hmm. that we can actually as a business afford to take a risk on. Um, because that's what steak night is, you know, steak night is a risk. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of excited. Like Patrick and I are like just jotting all these notes down, kind of going back and forth just talking about what we can do and, and what we want to play around with. That's cool. That's a great opportunity. And that's, it's fun. And it's nice to be with, you know, fellow restaurant owners. And that's cool. That's, that's a cool trip. And it's also, it shows your dedication for this show that you got in really late last night. And I was up, yeah, really, up, I was really, up really late last morning. night. And we both, <laughs> for different reasons. That we, uh, yeah. We, because, you know, it's important. Anything. Anyway anything for wine and barbecue podcast <laughs> exactly and i wanted to say it uh, we're we should wrap this up because this is a, it's gonna be almost a two-hour show uh but uh you guys do i wanted to mention even though we had talked about not mention you do have ribs again at greenway plaza and that wasn't that was something that for the longest time you didn't have and so i want people to know yes. if they do because you know there's a it's i love brisket and i love beef but there's something special about having ribs ribs it's just kind of messy yeah and fun. I, I can say this because I don't smoke any of the meats, um, so it's not arrogant. Uh, I think our ribs are phenomenal. Um, I, I have nothing to do with them. So they look phenomenal. I can say that. I think our ribs are phenomenal. And we didn't do them. We did them originally at, at Greenway, but they were never really big sellers. And people would say, your ribs are so good, but I can't. I'm in my suit and I'm going up to a meeting after this. Like Nobody wanted to sit there with their hands and get messy. Totally understandable. So that, that was super exciting when we opened Spring Branch that we were able to you know, really push ribs. Ribs are huge sellers here. And I think because we post pictures of trays with ribs and we have all the same followers, right? It's one, it's one social media yeah. account. Those Greenway people are like asking about them, you know, hey, uh, when are you guys going to do ribs here? And so we've started doing them and they're selling really well, way better than they did before. Well, that's and I think great. Also, oh, good. People are dressing more casually to work. I mean, the pandemic's really changed like the, I think we kind of like, talked about I think the formal yeah. nature of work. So they're dressed in more casual attire. They're willing to eat the ribs. We're selling ribs and they're doing really well. Oh, that's great. And then in the tour, and I'll put a link below, you did a tour of, of Greenway for the um, barbecue and pit, uh, what, is that? what do we even call it now? Uh, bar, uh, barbecue, wow. joint, barbecue joint and pit tours. Uh, you have too many podcasts. It's I have too many to things track. going on. Uh, but, I'm trying to diversify. Like, I want, I'm, I'm excited about so many different topics that I want to share with the world. But they, when you did the tour, you show uh, the Burnands and it was the uh, Big Red Burnands. Is that something that you have Burnands there a lot or is that just ran, like so a random special? Or? Yeah, when we do them at Greenway, they're more specials, um, but we have those all the time at Spring Branch. They originated at Greenway, obviously. Everything we do originates at Greenway, but um, they were a special and they were popular. And then I know they changed it up. So actually this coming week, they're doing um, like a mango habanero burnt end over okay. there. They, they have a lot of fun at Greenway with the burnt end specials. And so I highly recommend that if Spring Branch is not the closer location and you're not intimidated by the parking that you go to Greenway uh, on Wednesdays and check out those burnt ends. That's the day we do that. That special, it changes up, but they, they do, they put out some really awesome stuff. The yeah. Szechuan peppercorn burnt ends that they do oh, are, I think our most requested special. They want us to do them at both locations and we're, we'll pull the trigger at some point, but right now it's just so special that it's uh, there and we like that. And that they, they created that. That's not yeah. Patrick and I, um, that that's solely the team at Greenway um, being creative and coming up with that. 
Well, and if you're intimidated by the parking, you did an awesome tutorial in the video, like hands-on, yeah. real-time parking, which was awesome. That was so I, I, so unexpected, but it's really cool because it's it's difficult just to get your brain around how like how to do it, and then you showed it. Yeah. So if the people are curious, I'll put a link below to the to the parking, and I'll put maybe a timestamp so that people can see just parking, and maybe I'll promote that eventually, just the parking portion, just to help yeah. you help people understand that. So then you do have burn ends every day at Spring Branch when you're open. Yeah, we do burn ends every day at Spring Branch. Do you mix those up or just a specific kind? Do you have a... Um, well, we're, right now it's all the Big Red. Um, I think that they might switch it over, and, and not, but it, it will switch into another permanent um, burn end uh, style. It's just, I think they're kind of trying to figure out what the next sauce is going to be. There's not many places um, that just have burn ends every day in Texas, are there? You I don't know. I'm gonna do research know, now. That's I, good. I know in the past, in the past, no, but I, I don't know because in the last couple of years, um, it could change. Yeah. We don't get out. We don't get out much. But uh, <laughs> I should. But know no, that. it's they sell really well. In fact, if they're if they're not available, it's because they sold out already for the day. Um, and we do a lunch cook and a dinner cook for the burn ends, just because we want to make sure we have them for dinner. But that doesn't mean that they won't sell out quickly. And you just order them by the pound. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's awesome. I guess, yeah, it would, I guess I was thinking maybe like an order, like you would get an order of burn ends, but then I guess you can get them by the pound. No, order. yeah. When we sell them by the, by the pound. So quarter pound, half pound, full okay. pound, two pounds, you can oh. order as much as you like. Gosh, I just, more and more, I hate that I live so far away, <laughs> but this has been, this has been phenomenal. This has been great. We, there's a lot of topics we could talk about, but I think this is time to uh, probably put it to yeah. a close because it was so wonderful with Jordan and can't thank him enough for God, stopping by the show. Yeah, That's, that was gosh, amazing. That was wonderful. Well, hey, have a have a great rest of your week. And then, yeah, so I'll, uh, yeah, I, get, I, I mean, we probably should end this in a proper way. So, Aaron, I hope you have a, I hope you have a good week and uh, look forward to next episode. This is fun. This has been a nice episode four. Yes, thank you. It was so much fun. You guys have a good day.